Good morning, Life Church Livonia, and welcome to week four of our series called This Is The Way. Yes, it's a Star Wars reference. Yes, it's a reference to The Mandalorian. Yes, you are welcome. If you're unfamiliar with the TV show, this is a show based in the Star Wars universe called The Mandalorian, and there is uh, an expression in this show that the Mandalorian people give to each other. They say, this is the way. They say it to give each other strength, to clarify resolve, to express solidarity, to make the hard choices. Similarly, one of the reasons I love this phrase is that early followers of the uh, way of Jesus were called the way. The early Christians were known as the way, and very similarly, they were living out their convictions in a strange world of their own as they encouraged each other to follow Jesus in the hopes of his resurrection. So this series, we've been looking at spiritual disciplines, practices that help us live in the way of Jesus. And each week we've been asking why Jesus engaged in each practice, how Jesus engaged in each practice, and how we can too. But before I begin and we get started today, I just want to get on the same page with some terms. So I just used the phrase spiritual disciplines. Often when we think of the word discipline, we think of the word punishment. A discipline in any realm of reality, it's not a punishment, it's training. People who want to be wealthy discipline themselves to stay in budget. People who want to be athletes to compete at the highest level discipline themselves in certain training regimens. People who want um, to be good parents discipline themselves in learning and certain behaviors, etc. You get the idea. It's not about punishment. It's about training. And our simple definition of spiritual disciplines is that they are formational habits that train us to be like Jesus. Now, Biblically speaking, unlike the Ten Commandments and unlike the fruit of the Spirit, you won't see an explicit list in Scripture of the spiritual disciplines. However, they are explicitly practiced in the life of Jesus. But because there's not a list, you know, there's a, a couple different authors who have different lists of their own, and each list has its own validity. There's greatness in all of them. But just for our sake today, I want to give a, a functional list that's kind of widely accepted in Christendom. And these spiritual disciplines are broken into two categories, disciplines of abstinence and disciplines of engagement. So a couple disciplines of abstinence would be things like chastity, uh, solitude, silence, fasting, frugality and simplicity, submission, and Sabbath. Disciplines of abstinence are really about refraining or withholding from something in order to be closer to God. Now, on the opposite end, we have disciplines of engagement, which is where we're intentionally doing something, not refraining, but doing something new on purpose. Disciplines like this might be prayer, meditation, might be worship, scripture reading and study, celebration, service and sacrifice, fellowship and community, etc. Confession. So as the name of this series states, these are all practices that help us live in the way of Jesus. Week one, we talked about community and how community is in the way of Jesus. Then week two, Nate Wahlberg talked about solitude and how solitude is the way of Jesus. Last week, Pastor Kate talked about hospitality and how hospitality is the way of Jesus. And today, we are continuing our series by talking about fasting. That's right. It's the week of Thanksgiving, and we're talking about not eating, so you're welcome for that. Uh, my uh, encounter with fasting began in my undergraduate days at Spring Arbor University when I took a class called Spiritual 
formation. This class was really impactful for me in a number of ways. One of the assignments in the class that really had an impact on me was I was assigned to pick two spiritual disciplines that I practiced for the whole semester, a period of between three and four months. And I had to write a paper on my experience at the end. And the two disciplines I chose were Sabbath and fasting. Now Sabbath, beginning to practice Sabbath was one of the most transformational turning points in my whole life and walk with Jesus. Very profound. This isn't a sermon on Sabbath. That'll be a different sermon. This is a sermon on fasting. So I had never done fasting before, and that's part of why I chose it for the assignment. You know, I was confused, genuinely. I was like, how does not eating bring you closer to God or make you more like Him? And so I, I decided to find out for myself. And I didn't really know what to do, you know, like, what do you do when you start a fast? You just, you know, so I just picked a day and went, okay, Wednesday, not eating that day, right? And so uh, I didn't eat for a couple Wednesdays and I began writing notes for my paper. And as I began fasting regularly on Wednesdays, I discovered fasting makes you hungry <laughs> and it makes you tired <laughs> and it makes you irritable. <laughs> you know, go figure, I was grumpier when I was fasting and not eating. And I thought clearly this cannot be all there is to, to discern and discover in the spiritual discipline. I learned while I was fasting that I'm more irritable and less like Jesus, right? So I decided I'm missing something. Maybe I'm not fasting enough. In the Bible, the Pharisees tell Jesus about how they fast twice a week, and I thought, maybe that's what I'll do. I'll start fasting twice a week. So I was fasting Wednesdays and Fridays. And you know what happened? I was really hungry two times in seven days instead of once. And my experience didn't really change. So I experimented with these different things and I really began to experience a breakthrough when I decided to do a three-day fast all in a row. Uh, and there was a turning point there. Day one was the hunger I had come ac become accustomed to. Day two, the hunger got even worse and I wasn't sure I was going to be able to finish the fast. Day three um, was something unexpected. I wasn't hungry at all. In fact, I was totally satiated. And the most amazing thing happened. When I woke up day three of the fast, it felt like the volume on the world got turned down. And the volume on God's voice got turned up. And I felt like I could hear God so much more clearly. I felt really aware of his presence. It felt easy to pray and to talk with him. And I was astonished and I was confused. How could something so simple as not eating make me so much more aware of the presence of God? I wasn't sure, but I knew I had finally tapped into something. But despite that powerful experience, I've only returned to fasting more than three days a handful of times in the last 10 to 12 years. As I studied for this sermon, I was really inspired and convicted and challenged, realizing that I have a whole lot to learn still when it comes to fasting. And as I studied and I wondered why I hadn't returned to fasting in a serious way over the last 10 years, I read this quote from Richard Foster's classic work, Celebration of Discipline. And this is what Foster says about fasting. More than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We cover up what is inside of us with food and with other good things, but in fasting, these things surface. If pride controls us, 
it will be revealed almost immediately. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear, if they are within us, they will surface during fasting. How easily we begin to allow non-essentials to take precedence in our lives. How quickly we crave things we do not need until we are enslaved by them. Fasting shows us what controls us. And as I began to think about when could I do a three-day fast again, all this fear in me came up about how unproductive I'm going to be during those three days. And I just felt a knife to the heart and went, the reason I haven't returned to fasting is my idolization of my own productivity. And I was convicted. But whether it's uh, productivity or something else, all of us have compulsions that drive us. Places where we allow things that are secondary to take precedence in our lives. Sometimes it can be a compulsion towards certain emotions like anger or sadness or fear. It can even be a compulsion to deny our emotions and pretend like we don't have them. Sometimes our compulsions aren't emotional, though, but they're physical, like a desire to eat, a desire to sleep, a desire to have sex, a desire to engage or disengage in conflict or in life. When managed properly, all of our compulsions can be good and beautiful gifts from God that are meant to give life to us and to the people around us. But when managed averagely, our compulsions quickly become less than desirable or unhealthy habits. You know, we might eat too much too regularly or get angry at the first response to anything or, you know, be afraid of any new uh, information or input or struggle to say no. You know, when, when we're managing these compulsions kind of averagely, we find ourselves saying things like, I just have a big appetite. Everybody in my family does. It's genetic. I can't help it. We say things like, ah, that's just my personality. The people close to me get it, and it's not something I need to change. If you love me, you'll accept me. We say, listen, it's just how I grew up. You don't understand. It might not be normal to you, but it is for me. Or everyone looks at a little porn once in a while. It's natural, isn't it? Or it's always been hard for me to get up. I like to sleep. Staying in my bed isn't hurting anybody. What's the problem? When managed averagely, these things start to get out of control, and when managed poorly, our compulsions turn into addictions. They return into uh, responses or diagnoses that greatly disrupt and damage our lives. And so regardless of where you find yourself today, all of us have pockets in our lives where no is an offensive word. Where if we were to hear no to eating, to smoking, to alcohol, to sex, to whatever the thing is, that we would feel frustrated, that we would feel like even it endangers our sense of well-being. The goal is that there would be no space in our life, though, where God cannot say no to us and no areas where we tell him no. No is not a bad word. A good no is often more loving than a yes. So as we begin to look at scripture today, the question we are asking is, where is no a bad word in my life? Where in my life is no a bad word? Throughout the Gospels, 
We see Jesus uh, address fasting several times. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, Jesus says to fast for the sake of God, not for the sake of close or not for the sake of the approval of others, but only for the sake of closeness with God. In Mark 9, the disciples struggle to cast out a specific demon. And when they ask Jesus why they couldn't, Jesus says this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. Jesus speaks on fasting several other times throughout the Gospels, but despite that, we only see Jesus practice fasting once. And it's at the very beginning of his earthly ministry. And it brings us to the question, why did Jesus practice fasting? In the beginning of Matthew and Luke, we see Jesus' birth. But from the time Jesus is about two years old till he's 30, there is this big gap. We know very little about his life. Jesus is living a hidden life. But he's living a hidden life that is growing and maturing in love for God and in love for people. However, when Jesus turns 30, he comes out of obscurity. He's baptized by his cousin John in the Jordan River. And immediately after baptism, the Holy Spirit leads him out into the wilderness to be tested and tempted by the devil. And this is what the Bible says. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So visualize this with me, if you will. Jesus has this profound baptism experience where this Father speaks from heaven. The Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. It's really this beautiful kind of uh, moment of the Trinity. <clears throat> and then the Spirit immediately leads Jesus out into the desert, which I don't know if you've been to a desert recently. Everything dies out there. Okay? It's a place like basically nothing survives. So Jesus goes out into this place where everything dies. And he decides now's a good time to stop eating. <laughs> okay, So Jesus stops eating. And I'm sure the first couple of days were probably tough as Jesus's body adjusted to the lack of calorie input. And then Jesus uh, fasts for a elongated period of time. But as Jesus's body passes day 21 of this 40 day fast, his body begins the process of starvation and it begins to eat itself to survive. I don't know if Jesus knew the fast was going to be 40 days or if he was just fasting indefinitely waiting for God to end the fast. But at day 40, Jesus is nearing the end of his physical limits and the devil shows up to tempt him. The temptation is to turn stones into bread. And Jesus responds by quoting this verse from Deuteronomy. He quotes just a portion of it, but we're going to read the full passage. And the full passage says this, He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines, trains, remember, disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines or trains you. So why does Jesus quote this passage? And what does this passage tell us about the reason he's fasting? We're going to break it down into a couple different sections here. And we're going to start simply by talking about the one in the beginning. He talks about manna, feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors have known. Does anyone know what manna is? If you do put it down in the chat, anybody know? 
Men is a Hebrew word that literally means, what is it? <laughs> so they, they saw this stuff and they're like, what is that? And that's what they started calling it. Can you imagine if we called a food, what is that? You know, that's really funny. Anyway, we see in Exodus 16 though, that this manna, this what is it, is like a wafer type of bread um, that was white and tasted like it was made with honey. It had a sweetness to it. And while the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, God miraculously provides manna every single day so that they would survive. Next, the verse says that this manna was a provision that, quote, neither you nor your ancestors had known. That means God did a totally new thing that the world had never seen before to creatively meet the needs of his people and sustain them in a place where everything dies. No one in all world history before them knew that manna in the desert was even an option. So this is the first time. And I just want to say as a side note, is there a struggle in your life that you're looking to past provisions or patterns to discern, to understand, to solve, while God may want to do a new thing that neither you nor your ancestors have known? God may want to do something new in your life, and I want you to give him that permission and not say no to the new thing. Anyway, that's not what this sermon's about, just an interesting note, back to fasting. The next verse um, talks about how the Israelites were told only to gather manna daily and, and not to save any. And some of them did try to save it. They didn't want to trust God to bring the manna daily, so they would store it, but it would spoil overnight. And the only exception to this was God would preserve it overnight for the Sabbath so that they didn't have to work on the Sabbath. Now, what this means functionally, imagine this with me. Put yourself in this, in this lens. You wake up in the morning, you're hungry. And you walk outside your tent and you are hoping that God is bringing manna today. Because if he doesn't, you're just going hungry. The Israelites were completely dependent on God every morning to give them what they needed for the day. Jesus, when he says, give us this day our daily bread, this is what he's referencing and talking about. This is why Deuteronomy 8.5 says that it's God disciplining or training the Israelites. God was training them to understand that we need God more than food, more than water, more than air, more than life. We live on more than bread alone and we wait every day for God to provide what we need. God is the source of all life on planet earth, including yours and including mine. So when Jesus uses this verse to defend himself against the temptation to eat as his body is literally consuming itself to survive, he is saying that he is going to continue fasting because in the same way the Israelites waited on God to provide for, for their needs, Jesus is training himself to wait on God to provide for his needs. That this fast is a training for Jesus to calibrate, to orient him, to turn him towards the truth. That he may need food to survive every couple weeks, but he needs God to survive every single day. Jesus is about to be bombarded with fame, bombarded with expectations, bombarded with demands, with threats, even with death. But before any of that begins, Jesus fasts. And Jesus begins his ministry by practicing saying no to himself so that he can say yes to God. Jesus knows that if he's going to have the willpower to tell others no, he has to begin with telling himself no. 
Jesus begins by training himself to remember that he needs food every couple weeks, but he needs God every single day. That's why Jesus fasted. And that's why we fast. We fast to say no to ourselves so we can say yes to God. Yes to God's will. Yes to God's timing. Yes to God's plan. Yes to God's love. Yes to God's way. So if that's why Jesus fasted, how did Jesus fast? What were some of the specifics that he did? Well, in the Luke account, it specifically says, when Jesus was led into the wilderness, he ate nothing. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. In celebration of discipline, Richard Foster says again, in Scripture, the normal means of fasting involves abstaining from all food, solid or liquid, but not from water. And the 40 days of Jesus' fast were told he ate nothing, and that toward the end of the fast he was hungry, and Satan tempted him to eat, indicating that abstaining that the abstaining was from food, but not from water. From a physical standpoint, this is what's usually involved in a fast. So Jesus drinks water, but refrains from eating all food. Second, Jesus does a personal fast, meaning that he's seeking God for himself to purposefully galvanize his own relationship with the, his Father and with the Spirit. However, that's not the only way to fast. We see throughout scripture that many other individuals fast, but so do groups. For example, in Esther, we see Esther call for all the Jews in Susa to fast together and pray that God would spare them uh, from death at the hands of King Xerxes. We see um, in Exodus that during the reign, we see a group fast in Exodus, I'm sorry. We see group fast in Isaiah. We see it happen during the reign of King David. And in every instance, there's this group fast. It's because there's a moment of transition that the decision about King Xerxes killing the Jews, the beginning of Israel becoming God's nation, the beginning or ends of wars. When people fast in groups in the Bible, it's to pray and seek God's will and intervention around a specific event. So fasting is done both personally to cultivate communion with God, but also corporately as a means of seeking intervention and guidance on large decisions or emergencies. However, we also see in scripture that there are fasts that displease God, that he says he hates and does not like. We see this in Zechariah. We see it in Isaiah. God sends these two prophets to tell the Israelites that their fasts are merely rituals that displease him. They make them feel holy, but they don't make them more like God. Because their fasts don't lead them to do justice in the nation. Their fasting doesn't lead them to repair broken down places. Their fasting doesn't lead them to care for the poor more deeply. And God's rebuke of these kinds of fasts, we see another layer of fasting revealed, another purpose of fasting. Fasting is meant to draw us into closeness with God. But the purpose of that closeness isn't just to make us feel good spiritually. It's to make us like God. So that we live like God on the earth towards our neighbor. In short, fasts that please God are fasts that make us more like him towards our neighbor. So that's how Jesus fasts. We see these different kinds of fasts in scripture. And now really tangibly, I want to talk about how do we practice fasting? If the point of fasting is to say no to ourselves so we can say yes to God, and we see that we can do this personally, we can do this corporately, but the end result is really that we would live like God toward the people around us. What are some tangibles that we can do to practice fasting? Well, one of the things you've likely noticed 
is we're not talking about fasting without talking about prayer. That's because the point of the fast is that our hunger pangs would remind us that we need God more than food and that this would be our cue to turn to God in prayer. So as you fast and you think, dang, I am really hungry right now, think that's your cue. Lord, I'm turning to you about this specific instance, about this specific thing, about realizing I need you more than I need food, etc. Uh, again, I'm going to quote Richard Foster here. Sorry, not sorry. He's amazing. But he is one of the best practical guides to beginning fasting I've ever seen. Now, this is a, a long quote from his book, but I just thought it was so rich. I thought, gosh, I don't know how to summarize this any better than he did. So we're going to read an elongated quote from his book on tangibly how do we do fasting. And it says this, As with all the disciplines, a progression should be observed. It's wise to learn to walk well before we try to run. Begin with a partial fast of 24 hours duration. Many have found lunch to be the best time. This means that you would not eat two meals. Fresh fruit juices are excellent to drink during the fast. Attempt this once a week for several weeks. In the beginning, you'll be fascinated with the physical aspects of your experience, but the most important thing to monitor is the inner attitude of the heart. Outwardly, you'll be performing the regular duties of your day, but inwardly, you will be in prayer and adoration, song and worship. In a new way, cause every task of the day to be a sacred ministry to the Lord. However mundane your duties for you, they are a sacrament. Break your fast with a light meal or fresh fruits and vegetables and a good deal of inner rejoicing. After two or three weeks, you're prepared to attempt a normal fast of 24 hours. Drink only water, but use healthy amounts of it. Many feel distilled water is best. If the taste bothers you, add one teaspoon of lemon juice. You'll probably feel some hunger pains or discomfort before the time is up. That is not real hunger. Your stomach has been trained through years of conditioning to give signals of hunger at certain hours. In many ways, the stomach is like a spoiled child, and a spoiled child does not need indulgence, but needs discipline. You must not give in to this grumbling, ignore the signals, or even tell your spoiled child to calm down, and in a brief time, the hunger pangs will pass. If not, sip another glass of water and the stomach will be satisfied. You are to be the master of your stomach, not its slave. If family obligations permit, devote time you would normally use eating to meditation and prayer. It should go without saying that you should follow Jesus' counsel to refrain from calling attention to what you are doing. The only ones who should know you are fasting are those who have to know. If you call attention to your fasting, people will be impressed, and Jesus said, that will be your reward so good. He goes on uh, after that to talk about how to do a fast for three days and how to do a fast for seven days all the way up to 21 days at which point your body begins the process of starvation. Now many of you have not fasted from food for more than 24 hours but many of us have fasted from other things like sugar, like alcohol, like video games, like Facebook, like the internet, etc. These other kinds of fasts are great. They are. They're wonderful. We can say no to many things in order to train ourselves to say yes to God. And that's almost never going to be a bad thing. But when the Bible talks about fasting, it's specifically referring to food fasts because our life is tied up in food. It's not tied up in the other things. We don't need sugar. 
We don't need alcohol. We don't need video games. We don't need the internet. We don't need Facebook uh, to actually survive, but we do need food to actually survive. And I think that's part of the point. My experience as a pastor over the last 10 years, I've seen food fasts are generally more impactful for people. And I think that's the reason. However, there can be different medical conditions or life circumstances in which a traditional food fast is not an option or really shouldn't be observed wisely. And I just totally acknowledge that. And I think you can supplement that and be creative with that and still figure out some way to participate in saying no to something you need in order to say yes to God. So I'm not putting down fasting from other things at all, um, but I do think that there is something special about a food fast and that all of our compulsions need training so we can say no to them to say yes to God, but food fasts do seem to be unique. So as we come to the end of our time today and you consider what God might be asking you to do to walk in the way of Jesus, I just want to ask, what's your next step? At the very end of this, I have a special call. If you call Life Church Livonia home, I have a special fasting invitation for you. But before we get to that, maybe you're here today and you're trying to follow Jesus, but there is just something in the way. There is a circumstance in which a no from God feels offensive or would feel offensive, where a no from God feels or would feel unloving, where a no from God feels or would feel mean. Maybe there's an unanswered prayer. You've been trying to do all the right things to get God to hear you, but it's just not working out. If that's you, I want to invite you to let go. And I want to invite you to let God be the thing that defines this season of your life, that defines the quality of your soul, that defines the state of your peace, that defines your circumstances, not the other way around. Instead of thinking, God is good if I get the job, if my family changes, if I get the raise, if my body cooperates with me. Think instead, God is good so. I know he'll take care of me regardless of how my body acts, of how my finances are, of what happens at my job, of how my family reacts, etc. He is the redeemer of all things, friend. And my faith, my peace, my hope, my joy, all those things should be in him, not in how much he does the things we want. Maybe you're here today and you don't know this God that we're talking about. You're not sure you believe in God. And you've lived life your own way for a long time. And man, you just feel the emptiness, don't you? It just doesn't seem to satisfy no matter what you do. You've tried to fill your life with money, maybe with relationships, maybe with fun. Maybe you've tried to fill your life with a substance, a coping mechanism, pornography or sex. You filled your life with romantic relationship after romantic relationship, but there's just nothing that's satiating that hunger in your soul. That hunger in your soul, as Jesus said, is not for anything physical. It is for God. We do not live on bread alone, but we live on God. And if that's you today, God is inviting you to taste of him and to see that he will satisfy the deepest areas of your human being. Jesus created this world so good and right. We see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all making this good, beautiful, right, perfect world 
where there's no tears, there's no pain, there's no loss, there's no grief, there's just good. And then humanity sins. We live outside of God's way, we disobey, and it invites death into every single part of the human experience. Every person born with a deformity, every person born with a disorder, every uh, thing that happens in the world that's broken, even natural disasters that destroy people's homes, all the grief and pain and loss in our lives, these are all a result of sin. But Jesus came and lived a perfect life so that he could take all the sin of all creation, of all humanity, of all time upon himself and put it to death on the cross. And he rose from the dead so that you and I might be reunited to this God that we cut ties with in our sin and might be satisfied as Jesus says he offers us life and life to the full. And if that's you, God is waiting for you. He is chasing you. He is longing for you. And he wants to know you. He wants to be in relationship with you. And I want to invite you to say yes to him. And if that's you today, I just want you to pray with me right now. Lord, I have done things my way. My love for you has been conditional or absent. I've loved many things, Lord. And those things have had much power over you. But God, I don't want that anymore. This hole inside of me, this longing, I ask, Lord, that you would meet me in that place and that you would fill me from the inside out, Lord, and that I would feel and experience this life and life in all its fullness that you say you have. Forgive me for my sins, Lord. Fill me up from the inside out and transform my life that I might become a different kind of person. A person who is full and not always empty. A person who is at peace and not always afraid. A person who has joy and isn't just faking it day to day. Change me, Lord. From the inside out, I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you just prayed with me, please reach out to us via our digital bulletin. The link is in the video description. We want to walk alongside you. And if you call Life Church Livonia home, I have a special fasting invitation for you. As many of you know, we have been doing our home campaign, our building campaign, our search for a new facility for over a year now. And we've looked at many potential buildings over the last two years. As of right now, we are highly considering the old family video building on Newburgh and Ann Arbor Trail as the future home of Life Church Livonia. Out of all the properties we've considered thus far, this one seems to have the most potential for our church with the least number of things wrong structurally. Uh, financially, things seem to be in alignment where we would be able to do this, but there are just lots of things up in the air. And right now, this week, we are in negotiations with them to see if we can get under contract, meaning we're not, we're not promising to purchase, but we're in a closed conversation where they're not gonna entertain other offers until we decide whether or not this will work. So we're in this discernment process right now. When I say us, I don't just mean me, I don't just mean the staff, I mean the leadership team, I mean your building committee that has been elected and selected for this. And I want to invite you as a member of this church, as someone who calls this church home, to fast and pray with us this week. We're going to be praying over specific things as a church, praying for the right location facility. God, is this even where you want us to be? In the right space in the city that we might do God's work and God's will. 
prayer for the right price and the negotiations and the timing with all the details like architects and city approvals and build out timeline. Prayer for great wisdom and faith and unity as we discern God's will and God's way together. If you call Life Church Livonia your home, I want to invite you to join us. We have these fasting cards that are available for download. You can find that on the digital bulletin. Download that and pray with us. There's a, a QR card on the back of that that'll take you to a form so that you can tell us what you're hearing in prayer. But we need to be fasting and praying as a church right now over, Lord, is this where you want us to be? Lead us in unity. Guide us by your Holy Spirit. Show us what our next step is. I believe that God is moving us into a new season as a ministry, and this space doesn't just mark a new meeting place, it marks a new season for Life Church Livonia. A season where we will be able to do better and richer discipleship, where we'll get connected to do more tangible good in Jesus' name, locally, nationally, and globally, and where more people are going to come to know the God who made them, who loves them, and wants to give them life and life to the full. So we're going to be fasting together Wednesday, 11:22. I know that's the day before Thanksgiving, and if you can't do that day, pick another day. You can fast from breakfast to breakfast, lunch to lunch, dinner to dinner. The point is that I want you to join us in this. I want you to practice this discipline of fasting as we do a corporate fast to seek God's face together. And we really need to hear from you about what it is you're sensing in prayer as we move forward. Pray for the negotiations that are ongoing this week. And I can't wait to give you a report and follow-up. We'll see you next week as we close this series, This Is The Way, as we talk about gratitude. Happy Thanksgiving.